In his work, Grounding for the Metaphysics of Morals, philosopher Immanuel Kant asserts that, quote, a lie always harms another. If not some particular man, still it harms mankind generally, for it vitiates the source of law itself, end quote. To be clear, to quote Kant is not to endorse him, but he's on to something here, isn't he? Lying leads to harm, doesn't it? It has from the very beginning, and it still does in our own day. We see that in our own lives. This morning, as we turn to God's word, we turn to a psalm where David and the people of God are facing an onslaught of lies and doublespeak. And it's my prayer that as we study Psalm 12, the Lord would increase our love for the truth and increase our longing to be at home in heaven with the God of truth. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Psalm 12 on page 452. 452 of the Bibles provided. The Psalms, as you may know, are a wonderful collection of prayers, poems, and songs of the ancient people of God. Often they were to be used in Israel's corporate worship. They are simple and profound and teach us something of the breadth and depth of a Christian's emotional experience. If you haven't spent such, uh, much time in the Psalms, uh, then I'd encourage you to consider making them a regular part of your Bible reading, especially if you are experiencing different emotions toward God and the events that are occurring in your life. The Psalms can help you give voice to your sorrow and to your joy, to your grief and to your gratefulness. As a whole, we need to remember that where the Psalms are situated in the Bible. They are in the Old Testament. In the portion of the Bible that is that's heightening our expectations that God will send a Redeemer to fully and finally save His people. Previous to the Psalms and in the Psalms, uh, the Bible presents the problem that though God created the world and mankind good, man has sinned and separated himself from God by listening to the lies of the serpent, Satan. Man has chosen the serpent's side and therefore chosen separation from God. And man is destined for destruction unless God divinely intervenes. Immediately after man sinned, God promised to intervene. He promised to intervene by sending a Redeemer, one who would save and rescue his people from their sins, and who would bring about reconciliation and restoration between God and man. And the Psalms are situated in the storyline of the Bible where the anticipation of full and final redemption is building through promises and types and shadows. And this comes out in the poetry of Psalm 12. Very early on, God, He began to call a people out for Himself, to live for Him, a people through whom He would work and bring the promised Savior and Redeemer. God created the people of Israel through Abraham and his family. They were to be the people who were to be faithful to God, and through whom God would bring the Savior. But being God's people was not always easy, and is not easy even now. It is not easy to side with God against our sin. That alliance with God alienates us from the vast majority of mankind, and will from time to time bring the reproach of mankind upon us. We can learn from Psalm 12 today, because that was the situation of the ancient people of God. That was the situation that they were facing. They were facing a hostile world 
all around them. Let's read Psalm 12 now. Let me read it for us. To the choir master, a psalm, uh, sorry, to the choir master, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The message of Psalm 12 is straightforward. In a world of wicked and deceitful men, the Lord will save and keep His people. It's a simple message. In a world of wicked and deceitful men, the Lord will save and keep His people. That is a message to cling to. It's a message of hope in darkness. It's a message that orients the people of God to faithful living in this world. That's a helpful message for us today, is it not? We're going to consider the message of Psalm 12 in three sections under three headings. In the first four verses, we see the petitions and prayers of the people of God. They are in a precarious situation, and so it's useful for us to hear their prayers and petitions. Verse 5, then, is the pivotal verse for the whole psalm. In verse 5, we hear the Lord speak. The Lord responds to the plunder taking place by making a promise. Then... In verses 6 through 8, we hear the psalmist speak and divulge his orientation to life in this wicked world based upon the promise of God. If you're taking notes this morning, here are the three points that will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Number one, petitions in a precarious situation. Number two, plunder and the promise of God. And number three, the posture of believers for life in this world. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section. Let's begin by considering our first point, petitions in a precarious situation. And let's just go ahead and read the first 12, four verses of this uh, psalm again, of Psalm 12. The first four verses of Psalm 12. David writes, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that make, makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? I should mention something about the ascription uh, that we find above Psalm 12. Before we move on to the opening petition of the psalm. I've, I've already mentioned that the psalms are, uh, generally speaking, used uh, in the corporate worship of the ancient people of God. It's no surprise that we learn that this psalm was given to the choir master. It was likely the responsibility of a particular individual to lead the ancient people of God in singing this psalm. 
The choir master likely set it to music or made use of it in a particular point uh, during the worship of the people of God. That's probably what that phrase, according to the Shimoneth, means. Uh, most of you likely have a footnote in your Bibles there immediately following that phrase. It probably says something like a, a musical or liturgical term. This psalm was either set to a particular tune or it was incorporated at a particular point in the corporate worship service. Finally, this, this psalm is Davidic, uh, meaning it's a psalm of David. We don't know which circumstances uh, led David to pen this psalm, but from his life we can imagine several occasions at which David could have written down these words. Still, there's, there's actually some usefulness uh, to not tying these words to a particular historical circumstance. Leaving this psalm free of historical particularities uh, allowed the ancient people of God to pick it up and to apply it uh, to their particular historical circumstances down through the ages. It even allows for the Lord Jesus Christ to pick up this psalm and sing it and pray it and thus apply it to his historical circumstances. And the generality of this psalm even allows us to pick up this psalm and apply its truth to our historical circumstances. I'm sure you notice that this psalm opens with a petition. The very first word is a petition for the Lord to save His people. This is nothing short of a, a desperate request for help from heaven, which leads us to ask, what do they need to be saved from? What, what is the situation that they are, the psalmist feels that he and others are facing? He tells us right there in the first two verses, faithful Israelites are vanishing. Perhaps they're being wiped out. Uh, this is reminiscent of what we read just one psalm earlier. If you take a look uh, in Psalm chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The wicked are taking aim at the people of God in that psalm. And perhaps David feels that they're being successful. They're taking aim has led to the taking out of the people of God. They're being removed from among the children of man, which may mean that they're perishing and dying from these attacks. Notice who are, are vanishing, that those who are vanishing are described as godly and faithful. Doesn't that description parallel well with what we read earlier in the service from Revelation chapter 6? In Revelation 6, we heard about the saints who were faithful to God by proclaiming the word of God. They were bearing witness to the truth. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. And in Revelation chapter 6 verse 11, they're, they're also described as servants. They were faithful in service. They were killed for being godly and faithful. That's striking, strikingly similar to what we read about here in Psalm 12. Let me encourage you to come back tonight as we'll reflect on Revelation chapter 6 at 5 p.m. in our communion service. Brothers and sisters, could we rightly be described as godly? And faithful. Shouldn't we long to be described that way? Don't we want that to be an accurate description of our lives before God? Now it's obvious that David is using some hyperbole here in this psalm. He's slightly overstating his case for poetic and rhetorical effect. He wants us to, to feel the, the precarious nature of the situation. Not all of the faithful have vanished. He's obviously remaining. But his purpose in, in stating the situation in such drastic and dramatic terms is to, to show the need for God to answer his petition and save his people. But pause and think on this for a minute. 
David is describing the situation as though the number of God's people on the earth is being reduced. Perhaps as you reflect on the world in which we live, you feel as though that is happening with the church. Do you feel as though the number of true believers is being reduced? Either by the revelation that there were not as many genuine believers as you may have thought to begin with, or by the martyrdom of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. This, this past week, I, I read one faithful Christian's reflection on this feeling. He pointed out that the true number of God's people has often been small. Sometimes it is the action of God that reduces the number of believers. Think about the flood. Uh, the number of believers were reduced down to Noah and his family. It's all that remained. And then in the exile, there was only a small remnant of faithful believers who remained. At one level, our concern ought not to be entirely taken up with the size of Christ's church. We know from the teaching of Jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Our greater concern ought to be whether or not we're a part of His church and faithfully following Him. David's description of the diminishing number of God's people on the earth is, is situated right next to a description of the increasing pervasiveness of wickedness on the earth. If the last godly one is gone, verse 1, then every one, verse 2, who remains is, is uttering lies to his neighbor. Think about how much a person must have to hate his neighbor and love themselves to lie to them. It seems as though there is no place for the godly on the earth, and there is no place for truth either. The notion of flattering lips there in verse 2 carries with it the idea of, of smooth speech. It's the kind of speech that can take truth, twist it, and make it tasty. It's the kind of, of speech that makes deceit delicious, and so the speakers of this delicious deceit have double hearts we see here in the psalm. That's why they, they feed their neighbors lies. See, twisted truths come from twisted hearts. Hearts that can produce words that conceal the truth rather than reveal it. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us recognize that this is a human problem. This problem is a problem that we have. This problem with the truth is a heart problem for us. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, then pertinent to Psalm 12, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, Jesus says. What religion... But Christianity tells you the truth about your heart. What religion but Christianity tells you the truth about your heart? And you know that this is the truth about your heart. You know that there is dark and deceitful thoughts in your heart. No other religion in the world tells us that the problem is us. And that the problem is our dead and deceitful hearts. Every other worldview and every other religion is double-hearted in that sense. The rest of the world lies to you with flattering words and tells you how good you are. But God, Jesus, tells you, tells us 
disciples, you and me, that our hearts are corrupt. And do you know why God tells us this in his word? Because he loves us. And because he wants us to know the truth. Lies and flattering lips come from a divided, deceitful, double heart. It has been that way from the beginning. Since Satan first deceived the first man and the first woman. Before they swallowed the fruit, they swallowed his lies. And so, lies and deceit spread to all mankind. It is a heart problem, not just for everyone out there, but for everyone in here. Christian, think for a minute about how you might struggle to tell the truth to your neighbor or even to your fellow believer. When, when we read verses like Psalm 12, 2, that everyone utters lies to his neighbor, we're tempted to think that we don't have that problem. Sadly, sometimes we, we boast about how we're not like the wicked, when in some ways we're just like the wicked. And I want to press in on that for a moment to help us see this. When someone asks you, how is your walk with the Lord going? Have you ever been tempted to smooth over the truth about your walk? Maybe you've been tempted to hide the real truth about how things are going with the Lord. When someone asks you, are you, are you reading your Bible and praying? Have you ever struggled to tell the truth? Sometimes we, we lie to others about our growth and sanctification. And so we need to confess our sin. We need to repent and to tell the truth. And, and I suspect that if we did, if we told the truth to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we might actually grow more and read our Bibles more. Because then our brothers and sisters can walk with us and encourage us and help us. Now look at what David's next petition is there in verse 3. In verse 1, remember, he has asked the Lord to save the godly, the faithful ones. Here in verse 3, David requests that the Lord would cut off all flattering lips. That's a request for God to judge the wicked. Can we pray this? Can we as Christians pray this? Can we, can we pray what David prays for here? I think we can I think we must. We must pray for God to save us. Praying that in His mercy He would bring our lies to an end and judge our sins in Jesus Christ so that we are not cut off from the living God. But can we pray this for those who are enemies of God's people? Can we pray for them to be judged by God? I do think that we can pray for the sins of the wicked to be judged on earth out of love for our neighbor. We can pray for God's justice to be displayed on this earth. But also out of love for our neighbor, we should pray for our enemies. That in mercy, God would bring their lies to an end and judge their sins in Jesus Christ so that they are not cut off from the living God. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Still in God's wisdom, sometimes He allows injustice to go unpunished on the earth. But we can, we can and should pray, and we can be confident as we pray, that God will right all wrongs and judge all sins that are not judged in Christ on the last day. In short, we can pray for mercy toward God's people and judgment on God's enemies. The last few phrases in verse 3 and those leading there into verse 4 tell us what flattering lips and, and prideful tongues do and what they say. The psalmist moves from speaking of lips, then to tongues, 
tongues again, and then back to lips. And that shows us what these lips and tongues do and speak about are actually mutually explanatory. In arrogance, they boast that they will prevail and that no one is master over them. They are certain of their victory and certain of their autonomy. They are their own God and they will live under their own rule, their own lies, and feed them to others for their own gain. This was true in David's day, Jesus' day, and in the days of the early church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to Timothy saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. We read that passage uh, in Men's Breakfast on, on Friday morning, and I was struck by how, par, how Paul paired lying with seared consciences. Deceit has a deteriorating effect upon our consciences. The more we live in the lies, the harder it is to tell the truth. Brothers and sisters, as followers of the one who has declared himself to be the truth, it is so important that we walk in the truth and speak the truth. We are in a precarious situation when it feels as though everyone in the world is speaking lies. And we, with God's help and aid, need to be speaking the truth. Having considered David's petitions in this precarious situation, let's turn now and consider our second point, the plunder and the promise of God. We find plunder and the promise of God mentioned in Psalm, chapter 12, Psalm 12, verse 5. So read verse 5 there. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Suddenly, here in the middle of the psalm, we find the Lord speaking. And make no mistake, this is the middle of the psalm. It's the heart of the psalm. It is where our attention is to be directed. Notice there at the end of verse 1, at the end of verse 8, they contain the same phrase, among the children of man. Verses 2 through 4 speak of the perspective of the wicked. And verses 6 and 7 speak of the perspective of the righteous, which leads us right to the center of the psalm in verse 5. This poem has been crafted to push us to the middle, to verse 5, so that even after we've read this poem as a whole, we come back to rest on the truth contained here in verse 5. God had the first word in world history. And he will have the last and definitive word too. God's speech is the ground of our hope. The lies of the wicked are not the ground of our hope. And even our truthful speech as believers is not the ground of our hope. God's word, his promises are the ground of our hope. And here God speaks the definitive word. The Lord says that he will arise. In the Psalms, this language is language used to describe as God moving into action. He will arise from his throne and, and act. It's not as though he's been inactive in the world or in the situation, but now he plans to act in a different manner. What will he do? He says he will give the believer the safety for which he longs. This is the promise of Psalm 12. The Lord will place the believer in safety. He will guard and keep him. So what is that safety? I think that there are probably actually for this Psalm two horizons in view. There's certainly the horizon of, of temporal safety, the situation that David and those who first sang this psalm were confessing. 
There's a temporal horizon. They were facing imminent danger. They were looking for safety from the double-hearted deceivers of their day. Safety from their lies. Safety from their punishing plunder. Safety from their preying upon the poor and needy. They are, after all, prowling around, as verse 8 tells us. The psalmist and the faithful are seeking safety from violence and oppression at the hands of the wicked. Why will the Lord give them this safety? Why will He arise from His throne and act to protect and preserve His people? He will do this because the poor are plundered. God will act because He hates injustice. He will do this because, you see there, the needy groan. He has heard their cries, just like He heard the cries of the people of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. And so He was moved to act. He has heard the groans of His needy people and He has been moved to act. And brothers and sisters, do not forget that God's speaking here is in response to David and the whole assembly of Israel speaking to Him in prayer and making petitions. Remember, we've just heard them petition God saying, Save us, have mercy upon us, judge our enemies. Why does God arise? He arises not only because He hates the injustice of the poor being plundered, but He arises also because He has heard the cries of His people. Why do we not open our mouths in prayer? When we see over and over again in the Scripture that it moves our God to act. Our God is responsive to His people. We are not deists. We do not believe that God is a cosmic clockmaker, having made the clock, spun it up, and let it run its own course. No. Our God is an engaged Father who hears the cries of His children and He is moved to act because He loves them. So let us call Him to act. Let us petition Him like David and the ancient people of God did. Let us cry out to Him and let us be honest and passionate in our prayers. You know, in the original language, in the Hebrew, the word for groaning here in verse 5 is sighing. Your prayers can be emotional. The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. That's a good word for us. We need to pray until we pray. For prayer is a means that God has ordained to accomplish His purposes. God's purpose is here. God's purpose here is to place His people in the safety for which they long. Did He do that? If you look at the conclusion of the psalm, the conclusion of the psalm seems to indicate that there are still wicked and evil men running around. We must remember that built into the very nature of the fulfillment of promises is for some amount of time to pass. So, so when my kids ask me for dessert after you know dinner but they do it at like three o'clock in the afternoon sure we can have dessert after dinner time passes right before that promise is is fulfilled that's the nature of, of promises time must pass so did god rescue david and his people from the oppression they were facing did the the believers who first sang the psalm receive the safety for which they were longing i think they did either through God bringing them home to heaven or through judging their oppressors on earth. Both are ways in which we can understand God to have fulfilled this promise. One fulfillment is temporary and the other is eternal. Those are the kind of two horizons we've been thinking about. The precarious situation which this psalm presents and which God promised to resolve looks beyond even the events which first gave rise to this psalm. Because of the extravagant language here and the situation 
of this psalm and the larger story of the Bible, we know that as long as the Lord Jesus Christ tarries until Jesus returns, God's people will always face a certain amount of danger in this world. We can pray for our rescue from dangerous situations today. But let us also pray for the rescue that is coming on the last day. Let us pray for God to place us in His safety by praying, Come, Lord Jesus. Now, can I ask you a question? Do you long for the safety of heaven? I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to want the safety of this world. Sometimes safety in this world can become an idol for us. We will bend our biblical principles for unbiblical things because we want safety. I do think that it's good and right for us to ask God for safety in this world. But we ought to be willing to forego our safety on earth so that we might make it safely home to heaven. And our God has promised to us the safety of heaven. Safety in heaven must be an overriding desire and longing. We have no reason to doubt that we will receive the safety of heaven. Our God has promised, us, promised it to us with certainty. Look at the last part of verse 5, the promise of the Lord. He says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Notice that certainty, that determination from the Lord. The Lord has told us, I will do it. In the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, we do not fear those who can kill the body. We love and fear our God who has promised us the safety of heaven. Not only has God promised us the safety of heaven, but in time and in space, He has proven to us that He has procured the safety of heaven for those who turn from their sins and place their faith in His Son. It is precisely in Jesus' fulfillment of this psalm that God is able to make good on His promise of placing His people in the safety for which we long. You see, apart from the life and work of Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of this psalm and of all the Old Testament, we do not have access to the safety of heaven. Our sin separates us from God. God has made us in His image to love and worship Him, but we have sinned and so separated ourselves from Him. He is holy, just, and good. He cannot allow sin to be in His presence, not only because of its corrupting nature, but ultimately because He's just. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so we are in danger of facing the curse of Psalm 12, verse 3, of being cut off from the presence of the Lord forever. But that is where the good news of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of Psalm 12 comes in. God heard needy sinners like us groan and long for salvation from sin. And so God the Father sent His one and only most beloved Son to earth. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man and He was fully God. God the Son in human flesh lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. All of His words were perfectly pure. Where it was so easy for us to sin with our mouths, He remained sinless. Not only with His mouth, but also in His heart and His whole being. Though He was sinless, He gave up His life on the cross for sinners like you and me. And how did he get to the cross? 
the disciples, those who faithfully followed Him through His life and ministry, they vanished, verse 1, when the authorities came to arrest Him. Then liars were brought to His trial. Every one of them, verse 2, lied about Him. Those opposed to Jesus prowled through the crowd, verse 8, Psalm 12, encouraging the crowd to exalt vileness by condemning an innocent man to death. The book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 24 to 28, tells us that at the cross, Jesus was surrounded by evil on every side. The Jews were against Jesus. The Gentiles were against Jesus. The governing authorities were against Jesus. Both state and spiritual were against Him. Ultimately, it was God's plan for His Son to die on the cross, bearing God's wrath and punishment against sin so that we might be placed in the safety of heaven. Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day proved that God's justice had been satisfied and our safety secured. Jesus has first entered into that safety. He has been given a body which can never die again and He has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And now He invites us to have the safety and security of heaven by turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to believe the promise of Psalm 12, 5. Believe that God forgives needy sinners like you and me because of what Jesus has done. So turn from your sin. Turn from your lies. Turn from the devil's lies and believe that Jesus lived for you, that He died for you, that He was raised from the grave for you. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 12 and all the Old Testament Scriptures, how He's our ultimate hope of salvation from this dangerous world and the wrath of God against our sins, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with the Christian member of this church that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than you can think about than this good news of Jesus Christ. Having considered the, the precious promise here in, tw in, in Psalm 12, verse 5, let's turn now and consider the final section of this psalm, which teaches us about the posture that believers ought to have toward life in this world. As we begin to think about the posture of believers for life in this world, let's read verses 6 to 8. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Here we have David and the assembly's response to God's speech in verse 5. These verses reveal at least two things to us about the posture of believers for life in this world. First, they reveal that believers treasure God's Word. And secondly, they reveal that believers trust God's promises. They reveal that believers treasure God's Word and that they trust His promises. Having heard the promise of deliverance from the lips of the Lord, the people of God respond by affirming the goodness, the, the purity, and the perfection of God's Word. David and the people of God view the words of the Lord as the complete antithesis of the words of the wicked. 
where the words of the wicked are corrupt and corrupting, the words of the Lord are pure. And not just, you know, pretty pure, but perfectly pure. Uh, David likens the words, the Lord's words to silver having been purified, refined and purified seven times. The number seven in Hebrew literature uh, often signifies completeness or wholeness. The purity of God's word cannot be improved upon. So pure is God's word that the purity of every other word is measured against us, against it. That's what David's trying to communicate here. God's word is inerrant and infallible because he is inerrant and infallible. In the words of our church's statement of faith, God's word is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has truth without any mixture of error for its matter and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Brothers and sisters, what is your perspective on God's Word? Do you view it as perfectly pure? Do you view it as a, a treasure of heavenly instruction? Does your life reveal that? You know, our dentist's office, our family dentist's office, has a, a treasure chest full of, of toys for the kids after they uh, have a visit there. They can take some toys home. And you know, my kids are excited uh, to go to the dentist and to get something from that treasure chest. They're excited to go to the treasure chest. There, there's treasure there and, and, and they want it. Do you view God's word as being filled with treasure? Better yet, do you know what the treasure of the Bible is? It is God himself. You see, through the Bible, God is revealing Himself to us. He is disclosing Himself to us. And the more we know Him, the more we know we are loved by Him. As the great Puritan minister Thomas Watson said, read the Scripture not only as history, but as a love letter sent to you from God. Let us love God's Word and take God's perspective on His own Word too. God's perspective on His own word is revealed for us here. It's perfectly pure. When you love God, you will love His word. Now, verse 7 is kind of interesting there, isn't it? Having just spoken of God's perfectly pure word that believers treasure, David then says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. What or, or who is the, the them there of verse 7? Does them refer to God's words or to God's people. I, I think that David is probably saying that God will keep his people. But in doing that, isn't God simply keeping his promise, his word? You see, God keeping his word will lead to God keeping his people. And God keeping his people will lead, it will mean that God has kept his word. So, so the posture of a believer is to trust God and to take him at his word. He will guard his people from this generation forever. Notice the two horizons in, in that statement there. This generation forever. We talked about how these two horizons, the temporal and uh, the, the eternal horizon are here. Here I think we would do well to remember the words of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. Where the author to Hebrews writes, We can say confidently, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This generation and any generation can never do anything to God's people outside of the sovereign will of God. Moreover, this generation and any generation can never snatch us from our Father's hand. In Christ, we are forever secure. 
those who are kept by God are kept by Him forever. Now, at, at first glance, you, you might think that this psalm ends in a funny place. It, it ends by returning once again to the beginning. It ends be, by picking up the concerns of the precarious situations in which we live. This too teaches us something about the posture of believers toward life in this world. We must remember that we live in a hostile world. We live in a world in rebellion to God. And while we live trusting that God will keep and guard us eternally, we also live knowing that wicked predators prowl around. They prowl just like their master. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 reminds us of this and the posture in which we are to live. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This prowling and the exaltation of vileness, they go hand in hand. Do we not see vileness being exalted in our world today? God's morality is turned upside down. That's what it means for vileness to be exalted, for God's morality to be turned upside down. We see this in our day when murder is exalted. Sadly, abortion is sometimes championed as a good. The violence of murder is exalted when, when euthanasia is held out as noble. Adultery and sexual morality is exalted in our day when actual companies exist to promote adultery. The clients of Ashley Madison were recently exposed, and for that we can be grateful. Ashley Madison exalted the fileness of adultery by saying life is short, have an affair. But they were lying, flattering, and deceiving. With smooth words, they were telling people that adultery would be satisfying and fun. But how many thousands of lives and marriages were destroyed through the exaltation of that vile message? Life is short. God will judge vileness. So don't have an affair. The vileness of theft is exalted in our day. Illegally downloading uh, movies and music is passed off as shrewd, but it's stealing. So is hopping from one movie theater to another. It's portrayed as cool. Purchasing seats high up in a baseball stadium, then moving down to unfilled seats that you didn't pay for is exalted as clever. But it's theft when you don't pay for that seat. Now perhaps these seem like trivial examples. But let's be clear and careful not to rationalize and therefore exalt theft. Sin has a coercive effect, a, a corrosive effect on our holiness. The suppression of the righteousness and the exaltation of vileness occurs in our day. But let us not be so naive as to think that we are living in a unique period of time. This has been occurring since the time of the fall. David and those who first sang Psalm 12 had to be aware that they lived in a world hostile to God and His righteousness. We can learn from them and their posture toward life in this world. Ultimately, the suppression of righteousness and the exaltation of violence leads us back to the promise of verse 5, that God will place His people in the safety for which they long. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. I'd like us to conclude by thinking about how verse 8 
is actually not a strange place for Psalm 12 to end, but an appropriate place for Psalm 12 to end. How is verse 8 an appropriate ending for Psalm 12? You know, at first blush, it seems as though this verse simply confirms the wickedness that it continues on unabated. Let us not forget that simply because judgment has not yet come, that judgment will never come. Wasn't that true for Noah when he started building the ark? He knew that judgment was coming, and it eventually did. Second Peter tells us that Noah is an example to us of how God can rescue the godly from trial and trouble. Verse 8 of Psalm 12 reminds us that we are waiting. We are waiting for God to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of verse 5, our safety in heaven with Jesus Christ. Verse 8 recounts back to us, recounts back to the Lord, our present situation. Those who first sang Psalm 12, with those who first sang it, we also say to the Lord, Father, this is our present situation. Wickedness is all around us and vileness is exalted. And we want to go home. In echoing verse 8, we are giving our groan to God. In praying verse 8, we are expressing our longing for safety in His presence. It is a groan that He ought to hear from our lips and it is a posture which ought to fundamentally orient our lives. For in taking this posture, we remember that this world is not our home. We are pilgrims and strangers marching toward heaven, lighting the way home by imitating Christ and longing for our reunion with Him in glory. May the safety of our home in heaven in Christ be our heart's greatest desire. Let's pray together.